This episode of The Orthodox Conundrum discusses sensitive topics and uses explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Rav Eliezer Malamed, the author of the Petinei Halacha series, has recently been condemned by some very important rabbis. These well-respected individuals didn't merely disagree with his specific opinions, but also used ad hominem language and attacked him personally. What is going on? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I found the halachic works of Rav Eliezer Malamed to be very valuable, and I'm not alone. Many people whom I respect also cite him and use his books regularly. So when rabbis from within his own national religious community started issuing condemnations, I found it very disturbing. To find out what's really happening, what Rav Malamed is trying to accomplish— what specific ideas are so controversial, and why the controversy has erupted now, I spoke to Rabbi Eli Fisher, who is the editor of the English Penine Halacha series. We'll get to that in just a moment. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rabbi Eli Fisher is an independent writer, translator, and rabbi. Previously, he was the JLIC rabbi and campus educator at the University of Maryland. He holds BA and MS degrees from Yeshiva University, rabbinical ordination from Israel's chief rabbinate, and is working towards a doctorate in Jewish history at Tel Aviv University. He's the editor of Rav Eliezer Malamed's Pnine Halacha series in English and co-founder of Hamapa, a project that applies quantitative analysis to rabbinic literature. He is a founding editor of The Lair House, a web magazine of contemporary Jewish thought, and his writing has appeared in numerous Jewish publications. He also has a podcast called Down the Rabbi Hole, which has looked at the Rav Malamed controversy in depth. Rabbi Eli Fisher, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about the controversy which has enveloped Rabbi Eliezer Malamed Shlita, and I want to open up by talking about the series that you have been the editor of in English, the Pninei Halacha. What is Pninei Halacha? Okay, so Pninei Halacha, it's actually, you know, the English ones are right behind me on this shelf. It's a series of 19 books, I think, depending on how you count, 18 to 20 books that were published in Hebrew over the course of the last two decades or so. Each book covers a topic 
or, or a few topics in halacha, right? Very practical. He doesn't get bogged down in areas of halacha that are, let's say, for experts, right? Meaning that are that are areas of, of specialization. Like, I don't know, nowadays you would say malicha uh, or gitten. Things for which you need a real authority um, that you can't just look up on your own, you mean? Well, I don't even know if it's a question of authority. It's just a question of it's a skill that not everybody needs. Like before refrigeration, everybody needed to know how to do malicha, salting meat. Right? Everybody did that. It was done by the consumer. So everybody had to learn how to do it. And you had all kinds of it was part of the standard rabbinic curriculum. It was still when I learned for smicha, I don't know about you. We still had to learn a little bit of. Right. Malicha. That was, yeah, it was included. Yeah, but that's because it became part of that standard curriculum because everybody really needed to know it because it was done at home. And, you know, with the invention of refrigeration, it just it just wasn't something that people did at home anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's done at the site of production. It's done by the butchers, but it's it's not something that you do at home anymore. So that's not included. Right. So that's not there. And like, like I said, getting that's something that's really it's, it's concentrated in the hands of specialists for obvious reasons. We don't want to make it easy for people to decide one day to get a divorce. And then, you know, some guys like 10 minutes later writing up a divorce. And that's not cool. But for areas of practical halacha, brachot, the various holidays, kashrut in the home, mitzvot hatzluyot ba'aretz, right? Things that are, you know, shemitah and yovel and trumot and masrot, tefillah, Shabbat, those are all included. Two of the more recent volumes are on uh, marital law, laws concerning marital intimacy. One volume on Hilchot uh, Nida, the laws of when a couple can and can't be together. And the other one is called Simchat Habayit, and that's on conjugal duties more broadly. The two major issues in that book are, number one, conjugal duties, and number two, the mitzvah of procreation. And what are the various parameters of that mitzvah, and what are the various instances, the complications that arise, you know, and that includes things like same-sex attraction, that can include, he's got a chapter on uh, the termination of pregnancy, meaning abortion. These are issues that he addresses in his books. Well, then let me ask you, what does this do? What does this set of Pnei Halacha do that other halachic volumes have not done in the past? Is this just another type of Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, or is there something which makes it somewhat unique? Okay, so I think it's a lot more than Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, as its, name apply, as its name implies, is really short. Right. Um, you know, same thing with like, you know, Chaya Yadam. It's very short. And there aren't really that many examples of this throughout Jewish history where you have a reorganization of practical Jewish law, right? Obviously, some of the, you know, some of the best known ones. Right? Let's start with Chazal. Chazal essentially reorganized the Torah, and they put it into a form where there are six broad categories, right? And within those categories, you have about 10 subcategories within each of those, and that's how they organize the material of Jewish law. We call that the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was the first work or possibly the first work to be based on that template but the gemaras are also based on that template and the tosefta is based on that template and the riff is based on that template and it you know it's sort of that continues there was no other template really in use until you get you know a thousand years after the mishnah you get the rambam Mm -hmm. and the rambam he reorganizes it into 14 different books Right. And with each one of those, he's got several different subcategories and he's also trying to reorganize it. And that continues for a few hundred years until you get Tor, who reorganizes it into four basic things. But he excludes a lot of things because there are a lot of things that 
are not, he excludes things that are not practiced, right? Anything that has to do with the Beit HaMikdash, anything, pretty much anything that has to do with Eretz Yisrael, right? Anything that has to do with Shemitah and Trumot and Ma'asrot, he, uh, he leaves that out as well, right? And that continues, you know, until our day. You still have commentaries coming out that are based on the, the plan of the tour, you know, and in the 20th century, you have works like the Aruch HaShulchan and, and uh, the Mishnah Brura and later works like the Baal HaShulchan and uh, even things like Yalkut Yosef are based on, they're organized according to that plan. So does Panini Halacha work in a different way? Yeah, Panini Halacha is a new organization. It's a new organization of the material of Jewish law. Um, I think what makes it super popular is the fact that it really is, I mean, he's a good writer, very clear. You know, yeah, it's super clear. It's super easy. He proceeds from general rules to the specifics. You know, if you can contrast it, let's say, with, you know, the Mishnah Bura, the Mishnah Bura is a phenomenal work, right? Every single word in the Mishnah Bura was weighed, and it's clear that it's it was written with great care and attention. But it's also still, it's not written in essay form. It's written in the form of small, short, usually short comments on the Shulchan Aruch. So you're reading the Shulchan Aruch, you read a line in the Shulchan Aruch, and then you see what the Mishnah Brura says on it. And that, you know, it requires a certain mode of thinking, a certain mode of understanding, and a certain textual facility, right? Until recently, it was always published in Rashi script, which for, for many people, that was uh, that was daunting. Knine Halacha is easy to read. It's in the high school curricula here. My question, though, goes beyond that, though, is Rav Malamed, aside from reorganizing, and obviously you're saying organization actually is one of those fundamental things that can radically change the way we look at halakha throughout history, apart from happening to reorganize it, I don't know if that's a specific goal. Well, maybe I'll ask that. Is that a specific goal? Is he trying to reorganize it? And beyond that, is there another overarching larger goal that he's trying to accomplish apart from presenting halakha in a nice, clear form? So I don't know if he set out to reorganize it. I think that the way that this started, right, the origins of Pnine Halacha, as I understand it, is that his father is the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva in Beit Bel, Rabbi Zalman Baruch Mulamid. He's you know, a, a major Talmud Chacham in his own right, uh, a very close student of Rav Tzvi Hudakuk, and really one of the leading one of the leading rabbinic figures in the entire religious Zionist world. You know, he's more, you know, he's a Rosh Yeshiva, so he's not a, he's not necessarily a household name, uh, but, you know, he, Beit El has been training Dayanim for decades. You know, through his father, he comes from a, you know, a place where he's really imbibing Torah and he's imbibing a specific stream of thought within learning from a very young age. His mother is one of the founders of Arutz Sheva, uh, Arutz Sheva began as a pirate radio station. They were broadcasting from within Beit El. And then at a certain point that, you know, the government threatened to shut that down. And then they moved to a boat off of Gush Katif, um, you know, off the coast of Gaza. And they were broadcasting from there to all of Israel in order to avoid Israeli regulations because Israel wasn't, you know, Israel tightly regulates the airwaves. And then with the advent of the internet, Arutz Sheva became an online operation. They were streaming radio, and now it's just, uh, you know, it's a newspaper and it's a, a media organization. So Panini Halacha started as, I think, as a column in, either as a, a radio spot for Arutz Sheva or as a column in, uh, in, one of their, in one of their leaflets that they would put out on a weekly basis. And he would just take 
one you know short area of halacha and he would turn it into an essay and it would be comprehensive and it would include some of the broader ideas within which you can assimilate it and they became very popular and then he collected a bunch and he published it as a book and those books became popular and then you know and, and he was off to the races you know every year or two he comes out with a new volume well, Rabbi Fisher, you mentioned in one of your podcasts that Rav Malamed has what you call a civilizational approach to halacha. I'd like to know, first of all, what that means. And second of all, does that mean that he has a larger goal here beyond simply putting down Piskei Halacha, a larger societal goal in terms of what he's trying to accomplish? Uh, yeah. So that's how it started. But at a certain, you know, at, at a certain point, I think it became, I, I would imagine that this was always his approach. But in terms of how it comes out in the books, I, you know, I don't know if that was there in the first books. I, I'll leave that to whoever writes their dissertation on uh, on the evolution of Penine Halacha, the development of Penine Halacha. What I mean by the civilizational approach to Halacha is a few things. One is that this really dawned on me. This really became clear to me the first time that I visited Har Bracha. And I saw that that's all where he's of the, the rabbi. things that, yes, that's his community. He's the rabbi there, and when, when he took it over, it was a very small, it was a very small yeshuv. It's up on Har Grizim, Mount Grizim, overlooking Shechem. Uh, when he took it over, it was pretty small, like, a, you know, maybe a few dozen families in the early 90s. And he built his yeshiva there, and his, you know, through his yeshiva, uh, the community has grown. It's several, it's, I think, 700 families, around 700 families now, probably about 3,000 people. So it's a, a nice sized community already by now. And when you go there, you see that a lot of the ideas that he articulates in Penine Halacha are actually put into fruition there. They've created a situation where uh, young couples, young married couples, they more heavily subsidize childcare. They also subsidize houses for, for young couples so that a young couple that's just getting their start can pursue education, can pursue degrees, without having to worry about the, you know, the crippling costs of childcare, you know, as their families grow and as they, you know, attain their degrees and get their education and get jobs and become more comfortably middle-class, they're in turn uh, subsidizing the, you know, subsidizing those first few years of the next set of couples that are coming. Mm -hmm. And this relates back to Ruf Muhammad's ideas where, first of all, Ruf Muhammad is anti-Kolel, Unless somebody wants to go into a field that requires multiple years in yeshiva setting, he doesn't want them just sitting and learning for the sake of sitting and learning, right? When you finish your a few years in yeshiva, an army, you get married, and then you go, you get in, you know, you you pursue it, you pursue a an education that'll allow you to progress and develop professionally, and. That means, you know, investing in quality education for the men and for the women, right? It means going to university. It means getting advanced degrees. It means becoming doctors and lawyers and engineers and and uh, and programmers. And that's what the people in his yeshuv are doing, you know. But it also means that you have to figure out ways to not sideline other goals, such as building a family, such as getting married, such as learning Torah and living in a Torah environment. And so the way that his yeshuv runs is that it supports it supports all of that it's a really astounding thing to see it's really I don't, it's a unique community um and i've heard from people that you know they had expectations going there 
that like, yeah, I'm going to some place. It's deep in the heart of the Shomron. You have certain expectations of what it's going to be like. And after Shabbat, they're after their visit there, they're like I was really pleasantly surprised. So what I mean by a civilizational approach is that Rav Malamid sees halacha as a blueprint for how a Jewish society should run. Um, and that includes how it how families individually should run, how communities should run, and how a Jewish state should run. Now, he's not advancing Penine Halacha as legislation and for the Israeli government, but he's taking an approach, and I think Rambam takes this approach. Other poskim throughout the years didn't really, even if they do, if they do take this approach, they don't, they don't say it so, or they don't display it so obviously. Um, you know, that the Torah has in mind the construction of a particular type of society and civilization. You know, the Torah is not just about a list of, you know, we do this, we don't do that, right, as individuals or as families or as communities. But the Torah, you know, is is addressed to the Jewish people as a whole, right? And it's addressed to the Jewish people in Eretz Israel. You know, I like to think about it in terms of, you know, there's this famous Ramban, and the truth of the matter is, it's it's a medrash, and it's Ra, and it's and Rashi also quotes this medrash, but Ramban really teases it out. This idea that outside of Eretz Yisrael, all of the mitzvot of the Torah are really just practice, right? And so people jump on the Ram on the Ramban, like, why does that mean that it's just practice? Does that mean that it's like only a derabanan that? You don't really have to like build a sukkah if you're living in chutzla aretz, that you don't really have to put on talis and tefillin if you're living in chutzla aretz. That can't be. There's no way. I agree. That's not what the Ramban meant. I think what the Ramban means, and this gets back to what I mean by a civilizational approach, in chutzla aretz, right, where when you're not living in a Jewish polity, the mitzvot almost have this quality of they're atomized. They're isolated from one another. And especially when there's all kinds of mitzvot that you just can't do because you're living outside of Eretz Israel or because there's no Beit HaMikdash. For the Torah itself, all these things sort of hang together. It's a whole. It's not 613 different... It's a single tapestry, the meaning of which becomes apparent when they're seen as a single entity rather than individualized rituals without a connection with each other. It's a very Maimonidean approach, I think. Yes, I think that very much the Rambam takes that approach. If you look at what Rambam starts with, right, the Rambam's... Mishneh Torah, Yad HaZakah, you know, the first issue that he addresses is belief in God. What does it mean to believe in God or to know that there is such a thing as God? And the last thing that he addresses, the last section in Yad HaZakah, at the end of all 14 books, is the laws of kings, which is how society is governed. And the last part is the laws of, what you know, the Messianic era. You can see that the Ramam is starting with basic principles you know, believe in God, what does it mean to believe in God? And he's progressing all the way to, okay, what is the kind of society that the Torah envisioned? And you're suggesting that Rav Melamed in Pnei Halacha is using more or less the same template, a societal approach. Um, yeah, so we, we're not going to see exactly how that works until he's done, and I don't think he's quite done yet, um, and I don't think he is I don't think he's as comprehensive as Rambam. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not going to be a Pnei Halacha on Korbanot, Maybe there will be, you know, if, uh, who knows, right? I'm not, maybe there will be Pnei Halacha on Karbanot. That would be an interesting thing to see. <laughs> but for now, I think he's he's looking mainly at things that are of practical import today and not in the Messianic future. But I, I think that even within this, the example that I gave before of like how he envisions the society, of how he envisions his community running. So on one hand, 
because he thinks it's important, you know, for a young couple to really invest in education, he's more lenient than other postgame when it comes to something like birth control, right? Because he's looking at the long term, uh, the long term meaning for a community or for a society, and he's saying that okay, it's worth putting more effort into planning or even for some period of time postponing having a family if it's going to, in the long run lead to greater material comfort, greater ability to, you know, greater self-fulfillment, greater ability to care for the family that you build. And it's interesting that he's, he also becomes very machmir on things on Shabbat because part of his whole anti-Kolel pro-getting an education thing is that, I mean, when are you going to learn? You're going to learn on Shabbat. That's really the only time that you have to learn because the rest of the, the rest of the week, you're going to be working and you're going to be hard at work because you're going to be, so Shabbat is really the only time. And so he's like, you're not allowed to, you really shouldn't be playing Lego and you shouldn't be playing board games and you shouldn't be. And he has this recipe and it's like, he's really known for this. That Like really you're supposed to be learning for six hours every Shabbat, which is like, it seems like a lot. And he goes to places where people are maybe learning an hour or two. And even less, if you count, if you don't count and I don't count, if you don't count reading those, you know, those rags that they put in the back of the shul, yeah. I'm not going to name names, um, <laughs> half reading a Dvar Torah and half looking at the, oh, there's a, there's a Pesach program in Crete this year. <laughs> okay, We're not talking so about that. That sort of leads into a, I think it's a nice segue into the question of the controversy, because so far, everything you've said for the most part sounds, I mean, it's his own take on things, but there's nothing about anything you've said, which would cause people to get extremely upset. And yet... Many rabbis in the Dati Lumi national religious community, I think specifically on the right-wing side of the national religious community, have gotten extremely upset recently with Rav Malamed. They've issued some letters which truly condemn him in very personal terms, not just saying we disagree with this psaac, but saying that he's not acceptable, he's not, he's not fit to do what he's doing right now. So can you please explain what the controversy is, how it started, what piske halacha, what responsa have caused this, and then we can move on from there. What is the controversy? Yeah. So, you know, it's a funny thing that um, they, they don't actually ever say which are the things that they, that they have the, the most disagreement with, right? They're very coy about right. it. I've noticed that as well. We've been left to guess. I mean, sometimes it's obvious, but we've been left to figure it out ourselves. Yeah. Right. But they do say that it's in the recent volumes. Now, as I mentioned earlier, two of the recent volumes that came out are the ones on now, the criticism on that, they've come from various places. One of the best critiques that I've read was written by Rabbanit Dr. Tirza Kelman, who is a Yoetzet Halakha, and she also, she did her, her dissertation on the Beit Yosef, and her master's was on, specifically on the sources of the Beit Yosef in Hilchot Nida. Mm-hmm. So she knows her stuff. And she, you know, she wrote a very important and trenchant critique of Muhammad's attitude towards certain things where she thought that he was not attuned enough to the experience of women and was like making statements that were a little bit too blanket that, uh, you know, that probably should have been left for, you know, discuss this with a, with a physician or discuss. Could think, you give some examples of what you mean? Right. So one of the things that Rabbanit Dr. Kelman brings up is, you know, the question of what makes a woman a nida, mida oraita, or what makes a woman a zava mida oraita, and that he takes an approach that identifies modern clinical ideas about what the onset of menstruation is with what the Torah meant when it dictates that a woman is anida midi oraita, as though it's self-evident that that's what the Torah meant. 
Now, it happens to be that not only does that, um, it, it flies in the face of a lot of what the, you know, Rishonim and Achronim and even earlier say, but, you know, scientific knowledge changes, right? And so how we relate to those kinds of things, you know, it is going to change. But it's also, you know, there are a lot of kulot. There are a lot of, there's a lot of leniencies that are based on this idea that, you know, certain sta- certain experiences, certain physical manifestations do not constitute nido mida oraita. And therefore, along with other considerations can make it so that a woman is not a nida. Once you identify, completely identify nida with, um, you know, with particular and very specific physical manifestations, you're cutting off the possibility of certain kulot. And there are also certain cases where she brings that he's, you know, he's being too machmir. And she's not coming necessarily from the right or the left. I mean, she's coming, uh, you know, I would say politically, she's probably slightly to the left of him, but this is not politics. Right. Well, it's actually interesting because most of the critique, as I've seen, has come from the right of Ram Malamed, but from the people that we might call in Israel the Kavnikim, the, the right wing of religious right. Zionism. And her critique, by the way, was extraordinarily uh, respectful. Well, that's the difference, because the people who've been criticizing him yeah. have almost gone out of their way, and I say this with all due respect, but it feels as though they're going out of their way to be disrespectful, to say that he's not part of our camp, he's not qualified to issue these rulings almost ad hominem type attacks rather than substantive attacks about what he's saying specifically. Very much ad hominem, right? The, there was, I, I think the one person who really said the quiet part out loud was, I think it was Matanya Ariel, of, of, uh, a son of Rav Yaakov Ariel, where he referred to Rav Malamed as a Trojan horse. Okay, so can you explain why he would say that? I don't mean why he morally okay. would choose to say that. What is he referring to when he talks about a Trojan horse? What is he trying right. to bring into the so community? So he's saying... Right. What he's saying is that, like, you can look at, I don't want to use specific examples, but like, there are rabbis that are, you know, clean shaven, always smiling for the cameras, you know, who are, you know, who are on the the, the speaking circuit. No offense to clean shaven rabbis. Yeah, none taken. I mean, it's, okay, good. <laughs> um, there are clean shaven rabbis that are on the circuit in the various synagogues in South Jerusalem who are always, you know, like who are media darlings and they're perceived as being somewhat more moderate or somewhat more left. You know, they often claim the mantle of like, we're not like Shammai, we're more like Hillel. And I'm not just talking about organizations that call themselves Beit Hillel, right? I'm just <laughs> yes, I'm talking about, yes, there's like, you know, they, they claim that like, we're not like those nuts, like we're so smiley and happy and we're trying to make, you know, you know, Judaism palatable for everybody and whatever. So he's saying, so those guys, he's saying, they're like, we know who they are. We know what they are. We know that they're like, you know, they're, they're these, not part of our know, camp. We know exactly how to identify they're not part them. of our camp. We know that they're liberals. We know that they're, you know, that like, I, I don't know, like, I guess he sees them as an enemy. Right. Because, you know, uh, Troy and, and, and Athens were actually at war. But those we know that there are our opponents. But here you got a, a guy, Rav Muhammad. So first of all, as I described earlier, you're talking about he's religious Zionist royalty. Mm-hmm. Right. His father is a major yeshiva. His mother is a major figure, a major media figure in in the religious Zionist world. He studied in all the right yeshivas. He studied in America's He studied with the right people. He studied with Rav Tzvi Cook and with his father. And he's, it's not like he's in South Jerusalem or in the Gush. He's 
deep in the heart of the Shomron. He's on top of Mount Grisium overlooking Shechem. He's got a nice long beard. He wears a frock. He wears an up hat. He, he looks like he's one of us, right? But he's a Trojan horse. He snuck into our camp and he's really a double agent. That's what they're saying when they call him a Trojan horse. But what are the things he's ostensibly trying to bring into their camp? That critique you mentioned a moment ago is saying in some ways he might be too machmir. I assume right. there are certain things that they're upset about okay. where it's not a matter of he's too strict for us. So I think that some of the things that he that he's done, if you take the book Simchat Habayit, which I think was the first the first book that he published where he really started to step out of, um, you know, and he even writes about it. And I remember when he was like, I already was was working on editing and translating other books when he was writing this one. You could tell he was a little bit out of his comfort zone. And when he spoke about it, he says that he like always wanted to like he wanted to make sure that he wrote the book in a way that his rabbeim would not be uh, would not be offended by it, you know, would not think that it's out of bounds. So he wrote it in a very specific and a very respectful way. But it's about the mitzvah of procreation, and it's about the mitzvah of conjugal relations. Now, he says things there. First of all, according to his understanding, the mitzvah of Ona, amongst the duties that a man has toward his wife, are She'er, Ksut, and Ona, right? She'er and Ksut are easily understood as, you know, food and shelter, for clothing and shelter. And Ona is essentially sexual pleasure. And the way that he understands it, and this is very Shmuley Boteach-like, is that the mitzvah is to ensure that his wife orgasms. That's how he understands it, straight up. And as a result of that, meaning he says, he he sort of lines it up and he, and he presents a compelling argument, but I don't, I don't know other than Shmuley Boteach of anybody that actually said that explicitly before of Malamed. He also frames the entire book within the framework, within like, I would call it a prophetic or even a mythic framework. I don't mean mythic as in like fantastical, a mythic as in we're talking about like the, the way that the relationship between God and the Jewish people plays out in history. He refers back to Nevuot from Yeshayahu and Hosea, especially that the relationship between God and the Jewish people is explicitly modeled on the relationship between husband and wife. You know, that's made clear in Hosea more than anywhere else, where Hosea says to God, and it's, it's made explicit in the Gemara and Psachim, right, like dramatizes this. Hosea says to God, like, I don't understand, God, why are you still, why do you still care about B'nai Israel? They're so, they're, they're all worshiping idols. Like, why do you, why do you still care about them? Just give them up. Go find someone else. And God says, you don't understand? Okay, fine. Go marry this woman. She's a harlot. And go have children with her. So he goes and he marries this, you know, Eshed's new name, a whoring wife. And he has children. And then God says, okay, now divorce them. And he's like, I can't. I love my wife. I love my children. And God's like, you love your wife? She cheats on you. You love your children? You're not even sure they're yours. You know, so now you understand what I'm going through, right? So it's like a very explicit, like mm-hmm. like a really explicit analogy. God is trying to let Hosea know how he, Kiviachal, feels when B'nai Israel go and worship other gods. And the, way, the same way that like, you know, a, a father would want to 
cut off their, his wife and children. So God withholds the rain and God withholds the produce and God turns Eretz Israel into a Shmama. And so Rav Muhammad talks about how, like basically he reads an entire sexual ethic into that. And, he's, and he explains that B'nai Israel coming back to Eretz Israel, building a society here, making the desert bloom, it's a reflection of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If all these things are happening, if B'nai Israel, if the Jewish people are flourishing in Eretz Israel, right, then it's a sign that our relationship with God is on the mend, right? Because God's no longer withholding these things. And then he takes that the next step and he says that the relationship, you know, within our families, the relationships between husbands and wives somehow, in some way, parallel the relationship between God and the Jewish people. And therefore, when these, that, that basically, he, he says that it's true that a lot of halacha that was formulated and written over the past, you know, from the time of the Gemara until recent times, is what we would call sex negative, right? It's something that we don't really see it, at, like we saw, we, that it referred to sex as a duty or first, you know, there are these statements like, uh, you know, you should be, you know, you should minimize it or that, you know, you should, f- you know, that the man should feel as though he's forced, that he's compelled, that there's an angel standing over him, compelling him to do that. And Rav Muhammad basically says that that was a, that that reading is contingent on exile. You know, there's a halacha that a person should be b'ma'et b'tashmish, People should be that in times of distress, in times of famine, in times of the city is besieged, people shouldn't be having sex, right? People shouldn't be having sex when there's an overall, you know, a cloud of despair hanging over the entire community. So Rav Muhammad basically says that that characterizes the entire approach that Halacha has taken to sex for those 1800 years, but that we can start to emerge from that now. We don't have to take that because we see how things are. And because we th- see how things are developing in Eretz Israel, we're building a society in Eretz Israel, so we can take a more sex-positive approach. That sounds interesting and hopeful, but I don't see why that would cause such tremendous controversy okay. unless they're not okay even talking about the subject. Okay, so I think that he's not saying break hilchot nida. The subject, and now correct, he's not saying he bre- he's not breaking hil- he's not saying to break hilchot nida. Anything that he permits. In, in this context, has been permitted in the past by others. But usually it's with a rhetoric of chumrah. Usually it's with a rhetoric of, you know, maybe this is not the best thing, but if this is, you know, what you have to do, right? So, like, for example, example, if I can say Rabbi Fisher, when the Ramah says, Evan Ezra Cafe, he says that a husband and wife are allowed to have intercourse, shalokidarka, which means non-vaginal right. intercourse or perhaps anal intercourse. That's a different discussion. But the Ramad right. then qualifies it by saying, of course, it's better not to. Right. And he actually has a, a relatively expansive view of what bia shalokidarka is. You know, he, he's not talking about anal sex specifically, but he does get into things like oral sex. And he doesn't say that it's, but only if, right? Meaning he takes a much more openly positive, right? And we're talking here about, um, we'll use the clinical terms, both fellatio and cunnilingus. He takes a very positive approach to them. Um, he does say that, you know, that, you know, uh, let's say fellatio should not lead to ejaculation, but if it does, that's not a big deal. He doesn't outright encourage it, but he does say, if this is what the couple wants, and if this is how 
you know, this is going to bring them greater, greater joy. And this is going to bring the husband and wife greater joy. And it's going to strengthen their relationship. And it's something that you should do. He doesn't say that there's any, uh, there, there's no sense of like, well, maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe it's not the best idea to do this. But if the alternative is that the husband's going to go and his eyes are going to wander or that the wife is going to go and her eyes are going to wander or she's not going to be satisfied, then finally, fine, you, you, can, you can do it. Bidyeved, bidyeved, bidyeved. He's saying, no, if this will enhance the relationship, go right ahead. Have fun, kids. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, I can understand why that's controversial. At the same time, as you said, and I have a podcast with Holly Rosenbaum, Intimate Judaism, so I deal with these issues extensively. He's not saying anything which other people haven't said. It's just a matter of perhaps saying it in clearer language. So again, why the extreme disagreement with him in the sense that he's not part of our camp? This is terrible. I mean, this is not like people being Mechal Shabbos of Arhesi. It's something people are doing privately. No, I don't like, see the problem. Yeah. It's not like people, it's not like people being Mechal Shabbos of yeah? but it is like there is a sense that there are certain things that it's not that it's just that they should be kept quiet, but that they should be kept, that they should remain individual psak, right? That a couple should ask the rabbi whether or not they can engage in oral sex, which is like not a conversation you ever want to have with your rabbi or your parents or whatever. And I get that. It's like, hey, rabbi, I have a question. It's like, this is exactly the kind of question that, you know, an anonymous ask the rabbi websites were, you know, it's like, oh, here we have a question from Pete from Indiana. I don't think Pete's from Indiana, but this is question. Um, but wait, but Rabbi Fisher, so that's my question. I understand. So it sounds like you're saying almost the problem isn't the psak, but if tell me if I'm right in reading this, what you're saying correctly. The problem is the public nature of his discussion and the blanket nature of his discussion rather than saying, if yeah. you would like to know more, call me privately. Is that correct, right. what I'm saying? Right. I, I think that's a big part of it. And we'll throw into the mix, we'll throw in birth control. Birth control, I mean, birth control is not... He's not overly make there. He, he doesn't, he, he's not, say it's fine, he does have certain parameters. He's not the, the most... He has parameters and he has guidelines, but the point is that he says, take these parameters, take these guidelines and make your own decision. Mm. Right. Whereas until he came along and did that, you know, birth control was seen as something that it was ask your local Orthodox rabbi. You know, it wasn't something that a couple, you know, makes the decision on their own. Right. That if you want a heter, you got to go get a heter. Right. You have to get a license. You have to articulate why you want it before in front of a rabbi. But that's actually easier to talk to a rabbi about that, I think, than some of the other things. But uh you know, but you have to go and have that conversation with a rabbi or with a, you know, a rabbi together with a um, professional, a life coach, somebody that deals with family planning, right? And figures, okay, what's the plan? How long do you want to go on birth control for? Why is it so important that you go on birth highly control? individualized? Okay. That's how it always highly be. individualized. Like, okay, so you can go on birth control for six months. You can go on birth control for a year. You can go on birth control for two years. You know, and here he's coming along and saying things like, okay, any couple can go and do this for a certain amount of time. Um, you know, I've become fairly convinced that especially couples that, you know, barely know each other when they get married probably should be on birth control for at least a, a little while right after marriage. Because, you know, I know of situations where a couple barely know each other, they get married for whatever reason, it's just, it's just not a good fit. And they just, there's, it's nobody's fault. It just wasn't a good fit. They didn't know each other for that long before they got married. And the easiest thing is when they could just get divorced and go their separate ways. And that's that. 
But when there's a kid involved, they are connected forever. So that's another thing where he took, you know, the, the terms that I like to use are wholesale and retail, right? There's wholesale halacha and there's retail halacha. And I think the criticism is that Rav Olamid took certain things that were retail halacha and made them into wholesale halacha. I can think of another example as well, which someone pointed out to me in his most recent book on the laws of Nida. He also talks about a couple newly married. He actually recommends, and this is pretty radical, he recommends that couples not consummate their marriage vaginally for a week. He says they should right. be together. They should be together unclothed. They shouldn't be wearing clothes. They should be intimate in other ways, but they shouldn't actually have vaginal sex for an entire week after the wedding, which is a pretty mm-hmm. radical argument given that very few sources say anything like that. The usual emphasis is, are you allowed to wait beyond the first night? Here he's saying you should wait an entire week. Right, right. That would be another another example. And that's something that I definitely did hear passed on. The truth of the matter is that there are a lot of couples that can't consummate the first night. I mean, it's, you, you gotta, it, it, for a lot of people, it's a, it's a brand new, it's a whole new world. And yet at the same time, I, I still wonder, I see that people are, upset about some of this, as you say, wholesale halacha. Why won't mm-hmm. they just say that then? Say, our problem is the following. Those people who are criticizing him, are ready, they're writing their names. They're not hiding their names. But as you mentioned earlier, right. they are hiding this specific criticism. Why not say, this is a Talmud Chacham who says very interesting things. We disagree with the following piske halacha and or we disagree with the following aspect of his approach. Why just say this guy is not acceptable at all? I, I, I don't understand the logic of their position in terms of the way they're presenting this. Say the problem, explain why it's a problem, and then we can move on from there. Okay, so this is speculation on my part, but I think that there are two things going on. Number one, well, maybe more than two things. One, when did this whole thing really, like there have been criticisms of of Malamed, you know, they've been growing stronger for the past few years. When those books came out, when he participated in a panel with a reform woman rabbi a couple of years ago at a conference um, when he spoke last summer about how reform and conservative egalitarian groups should be accommodated at the Robinson's Arch section of the Kotel, that we should be nice to them, that we should give them Sifrei Torah to use, you know, things like that. So I think that he got a lot of criticism for that. Um, I remember a few years ago already when he first spoke with a reform woman rabbi, I, you know, I heard from friends who are rabbis in Europe who are like, he doesn't realize that, you know, this is damaging our communities, that he's empowering the, you know, reform and, you know, non-Orthodox in Europe. You know, I, I didn't know what to do with that, whatever. So those voices have been growing. I think that really what pushed things over the edge was when he started publishing his ideas about conversion, Gior. He hasn't weighed in specifically on Matan Kahana's proposed reorganization of the Gior process here, but he has come out and said that, yeah, you know, there is a make-kill approach and that we shouldn't discourage people from taking that make-kill approach. It happens to be that I don't agree with Riv Malamed about this. Mm-hmm. I think that educationally, it's very important to maintain the wholesale retail distinction here between the, the wholesale approach is you don't convert people unless they really are willing to take on the full, you know, full Jewish observance. And that we know that in individual cases, there are mitigating circumstances that you can accept a convert 
who we strongly suspect is not going to be um, observant, but will nevertheless be part of a Jewish community, part of a traditional uh, a traditional society, especially if they're married. You know, it usually, what usually happens is that somebody's converting in order to marry someone who is part of a traditional community, that the family is going to be part of a traditional family, so the kids will grow up with Jewish tradition as part of the, so fine. So there are plenty of ways to be mekel. We all know that there are ways to be mekel. We all know that most conversions that happen in the state of Israel, even under the auspices of the Rabbanut, do not result in uh, the convert ad adopting uh, a fully observant lifestyle. Litzarenu, meaning I wish that were the case, but I mean, listen, I've engaged in, um, you know, I've done conversions back when I was, a, I was a I was the JLIC rabbi at the University of Maryland. I've participated in several conversions. In fact, I had the great schut of going to the bar mitzvah of the son of a woman that, you know, on whose, for whose conversion I was on the Beit Din and with whom my wife and I learned for a year before her conversion. Um, you know, and it's like, it's real nachas. It's Yiddish nachas. And this is not the first time that, I, you know, this is her second son. And I've been another, you know, it's a tremendous chut. And I don't want to like come off as being like anti-conversion or whatever. But you know, we should have the self-confidence to say that, you know, yeah, being Jewish, becoming Jewish really means taking on this kind of commitment. Yeah, there are Jews who don't always do what they're supposed to do. And we know that not everybody that undergoes conversion is going to do what, what they're supposed to do, according to the Torah, according to, you know, according to the way that we live our lives. So you disagree with Rabbi Malamud's lenient approach there? You think the wholesale approach is not appropriate here? I think that the wholesale approach is not appropriate here. That's correct. And that it doesn't take away my respect for Rav Malamud, and I understand where he's coming from, but because it's a political issue, you know, because it's an issue of, are we going to change the law or are we going to keep the law? Then it gets uh, inscribed into all this political rhetoric. And what should be a fight about halacha becomes a political fight. I don't think it's a coincidence that this recent round of, you know, critique of Rav Malamid, it all started the same day that there was this massive rally of the chief rabbis and all of the heads of yeshivas outside of the Knesset protesting against uh, the proposed conversion law. I think that that's really what's going on. All right. I'll, I, I'm asking for more speculation. I'm still going to keep going. Even though it is political, we are talking about Talmudei Chachamim. These are scholars who are a part of the religious Zionist world I don't understand the ad hominem nature of it. Why must it go in that direction or why does it go in that direction? I guess I'm asking you to defend it a little bit to say, what are they thinking? These are people who are very widely respected. Why write letters that are so offensive? Why not write something like, he's a great Talmud Chacham, we respect him, we think he is very wrong in the following points. What would be wrong with that? Yeah, um, so I, I haven't paid close enough attention to know who it is that's signing the letters that are really ad hominem, who's really saying nasty things. Like there were dis disagreements between, let's say, Revarin Cutler and Rav Yashaber Soloveitchik, but I promise you, I guarantee that Revarin Cutler would never, God forbid, refer to Rav Soloveitchik as JB, which was a term of like, right. you know, like of dismissiveness. So it's not the, it's, it's not the guys on the top, you know, they, they, Obviously, the message is coming down from the top, and the message of criticism is coming down, but the message of 
criticize respectfully is somehow not coming down. And especially when you come to Israel and it's like a very politicized environment here, religion is very politicized here. Um, you know, unfortunately that tends to take things to extremes. Now, I don't, I don't think Rav Yaakov Ariel or even Rav Dov Lior are saying, you know, that Rav Malamud is a terrible person, that he's not a Tamil Chacham. He might be saying, yeah, you probably shouldn't use Pemine Halacha, but that's not the same thing as saying, you know, there are books that I don't recommend. You know, I don't have to write a blurb on the cover in order to, you know, that does not writing a blurb on the cover doesn't make me a jerk or even like taking back something that I wrote. I just read a book over Shabbos. Now I have to decide whether or not to not write a review at all or to write a nasty review. But <laughs> the bottom line is, you know, that, uh, or a review that includes some nastiness. But the bottom line is that like, I don't think at the top it's ad hominem, except when it comes to, you know, maybe a few things. I think that, you know, Rav, the, the Sephardic chief rabbi, Rav Yitzchak Yosef, did say some things about, he talked about, you know, Rabbanim Ketanim. I don't know who he was referring Small to. Small rabbis, yes. Yeah, these little, you know, yeah, these little guys. Um, I don't know who he was referring to, if he was referring to Rav Malamed or someone else. I really don't know. If he was referring to Rav Malamed, then there's an exception. He and his father, you know, had a different style of rhetoric. It was a lot easier to forgive it for his father because number one, his father did not grow up in a rabbinic household. He grew up on this, you know, in, he was born in Baghdad and he grew up poor. He grew up from a poor family in Jerusalem. He grew up on the Jerusalem street. So he, you know, there are certain habits that you form when you grow up like that, that even later in life, it's hard to break, um, you know, and the style of speech, I think, reflected that. His son didn't grow. His son didn't grow up like that. His son, when he grew up, he was already he grew up nobility. So it's a lot harder to let that one slide. And he's also he's not his father. Right. You know, Ravavaji Yosef was like, I don't know what, like once in a 500 years Jewish mind. And, you know, his son is a huge Tamahacham. I don't want to take any, you know, I don't, I don't want to take that away from him. But he's not his father. It's not detracting anything from him to say he's not the unique person that Ravavaji Yosef was. Yeah, I yeah, it's not. I'm very open about the fact that I find it very depressing when I see people like Rav Yosef and others use personal language and derogatory language to describe people who are doing things you might disagree with, but they're trying their best. They're not <laughs> these are not evil people, but they're sometimes treated like they are. I'm not saying citing literally yeah. the words evil people, but there's some negative language that's used that really bothers me tremendously. It cuts deep. Yeah. Uh yeah, I'm with you. You know, sometimes I wish that there would be a little bit more people saying what they mean, but, you know, not in a nasty way, just in a way of like, you know, it's, it's a hard line to, to straddle to say, like, I think that this approach is a is an incorrect approach. Right. You know, and sometimes I see that, like, and sometimes you do want to go ad hominem because you see that people play games. Right. People are using language, you know, that's like, you know, and using rhetorical rhetorical strategies that are intended to obfuscate and that are intended, like, you know that they're playing games, you know that it's a clownish move. And I was like, and I just want to say, it's like, well, dude, that's a that's a clown move, bro. And like, you, you're not going to say that about a very well-respected rabbi because people are going to be like, oh, you're saying that about a respected rabbi? It was a, resp a well-respected, you know, when it comes to conversion, right? My approach is that like, even, you know, uh, I think this is the correct halakhic approach, you know, even conversions that are done by these rogue bateidin are bidyeved, um, you know, they're kosher conversions, right? And the Gemara talks about how in the times of Shlomo Amelech and David Amelech, there were all kinds of, it calls them bateidin shel hediotot. 
They were these lay persons, right? Lay panels that were converting all kinds of people. And and the Gemara concludes bidiavad kulam girimhin that post facto these are all valid conversions. So somebody once asked me, like, you know, I was against a certain type of conversion. It's like, you know who was on the Beit Din that did that conversion? This rabbi and this rabbi and this rabbi. You're going to say it's not a good conversion? So I said, and I said, like, yeah, I think it is a good conversion because it's a Bate Din, you know, because Bate Din Sheldad Yotot are good conversions. It's like, are you calling Rabbi you know, would you, you're going to call Rabbi so-and-so a head yoke? And I'm like, I believe I just did. And then that person blocked me oh. on Facebook for like, you know, eventually like we reconciled, but like, I was like, yeah, I mean that like I'm using a halacha category, but I'm also using a little, with a little bit of a shtuch. I was saying like, yeah, that, you know, that rabbi is baked in is a baked in. I think, yeah, because that's, I don't think much of that rabbi. I really don't, you know, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you who I'm talking about because like, I don't go around saying which rabbis I don't think much of, because I'm sure there are plenty of people that don't really think much of me. Um, <laughs> they'd be right. I'm not accepting that. We're almost out of time. Just That's one gracious last, of you. <laughs> one yeah. last, one last point before we end. Tell me about your podcast down the rabbi hole. Okay. I started this a few months ago, just on a whim. You know, one of the things that I like talking about is things about the history of halacha, like these weird corners um, halachic personalities that people don't really know about. At the time, I was in the middle of organizing a conference and writing a, a couple of papers on Rav David Svi Hoffman. So I did like a four-part series on him. I recently did a four-part series on Rav Malamed. Um, and we'll see where it goes. You know, it's just issues that I that I that I think about. And that when I when an idea comes together, I don't you know I don't plan it in advance. When it's quiet in the house and I have something to say, I'll just. I'll plug my headphones into my into my phone and I'll talk for half an hour. And that's that. It's just for fun. Rabbi Ali Fisher, we talked about a serious topic today, but you made it very entertaining. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm always here to entertain. <laughs> Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>